Luke Thomas here. Hello, everyone. Um, I wanted to do something different today. I wanted to produce some work generally. I've, I've been thinking about things I've been doing in my career, and I'm pretty happy with the way things are going, but there are pieces in my mind that are missing, which are some of these intellectual deep dives that I don't get often the opportunity to do. Um, none of the shows that I'm on, they're all wonderful. I'm lucky to be on there, but they don't necessarily cater to this kind of a format. And I've got this YouTube channel, so I figured I would just do some things differently. I spoke to Dr. Paul DeMio. He is a Scottish professor who has spent nearly 20 years covering anti-doping, uh, where it works, where it doesn't, and how it needs to be changed. He has a new book out, The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport. Let me get the title right. Causes, Consequences, and Solutions. Uh, and I read it. I read it a couple of times, and I was it had a profound effect on the way I was thinking about anti-doping and how to move forward. There is this belief in MMA that more anti-doping in the way in which we do it is simply better. Uh, and what Paul DeMio and his co-author um, have shown is that that's simply not true. There's really no evidence for that. In fact, the underpinnings of the current method under which we do anti-doping has serious problems. And as we ramp up those efforts, it will only continue to cause uh, more and more hardship. And frankly, we don't even know if, this, if these methods are very effective. And what he offers instead is not to scrap anti-doping. He has an entire section in the book devoted to the argument that we should not allow everyone to do anything they want. I think that's a conversation that maybe we could have down the road. But for now, I'm willing to accept it at face value and say, um, what are some of the other ways in which anti-doping can be pursued? And he seeks some of those out. Some of them are bold ideas that are going to be highly contentious, and some, I think, are pretty smart and common sense. But in any case, I wanted to have a conversation with uh, Paul, and I wanted to understand more of why he thinks the way he does. Plus, I was able to ask him about how he felt about the John Jones case. We actually start our conversation there. So the book, again, The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, Causes, Consequences, and solutions. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Paul DeMio. All right, Professor Paul DeMio. By the way, is it DeMio? Is it DeMio? How do you pronounce it? DeMio? Oh, DeMio. Um, to be honest, I'm not Italian. It's just a hangover <laughs> from the 19th century, so none of us really actually know how to pronounce it. So well, DeMio or DeMio is fine. Uh, fair enough. I will give it my best college try. <laughs> Let's get right into it. I want to talk about your book, The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport. We'll start First, however, with something I think a little bit more familiar to my audience, uh, namely the John Jones case. Now, this is not one I know you've written extensively about. I want to be clear about that. There have been other ones, I think particularly, let's say, with a Eurocentric focus, um, cycling and that kind of thing. Uh, and those are all equally important in their own right. But if I can, very quickly, you've had a chance at least to review some of the broader details of the John Jones case. When you think about how the anti-doping regulatory authorities performed their duties or did not. What is your major takeaway from that? Yeah, so my major takeaway is that um, there's a huge uncertainty. And the science is great if it works, if it tells us actually what we need to know. But I think this case, much like quite a few others, tell us if a if a substance was taken that enhanced performance, was it taken in a way that could be deemed to be cheating or given an artificial form of an, um, performance improvement? Do we actually know the context in which those substances were taken? Do we know the reasons for almost the, the three different violations all seem to be clouded in doubt? And so my takeaway point is that 
the process of the sample collection, the scientific analysis and the arbitration have led us to the point where we actually just don't know what went on and therefore we don't know if there was an element of cheating and therefore the, the whole sport is thrown into doubt and confusion. And if I may return us to the Olympics, that's exactly what we're seeing with the London 2012 Games. The whole event almost is under question, but in my opinion, it's the responsibility of the authorities to give us a framework by which we understand what is an example of cheating, what's an example of accidental doping, and what's an example of innocence. And the John Jones case to me, we simply don't know. And I've read quite a few articles online, lots of different interpretations, and all of it's unhelpful. If you were to uh, ask members of the community of, of an MMA, certainly, they would tell you, no, 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 these details are clear. This is merely institutional and intentional obfuscation. I suppose, is there a way to assuage those concerns? I mean, in, in other words, why is it, what is it about the collection process and these various other issues involved that naturally lends itself to uncertainty to the point where it leads to institutional erosion, essentially, and distrust. Yep. So if we take the first one, the um, you know potential contamination issue. So contamination can occur uh, in lots of different ways. So there's been many cases of clenbuterol contamination from meat. There's actually been examples of water contamination. And there's been examples of um, cocaine from kissing. There's been examples of residue being in a bottle that the bottle was used for something else, but what was in the bottle before uh, contaminated the sample. There's the production process, uh, and, and whether it's in established legitimate organizations or in underground uh, labs. So sometimes when an athlete uses something, they don't necessarily always know what's in it. And even at... Even if what's on the label is correct, sometimes the labels are very difficult to understand. And the athlete would have to sit down, go onto the Global Drug Reference Online database, type in all the substances to make sure none of them come up. But sometimes there's substances which are not on the label, which are in there, which nobody would ever know about. So the contamination issue is actually really problematic and has been for decades. The issue about lingering residue from a previous example of usage, whether or not that was on purpose. Again, there's been lots of examples, and we don't know sometimes how long a substance stays in an athlete's body. Um, from one example of one instance of usage, um, and I guess one of the problems with the use, certainly the way in which urine samples are collected and analysed, is you're only getting a snapshot. So if there's a trace element in a urine sample, it may be that the athlete took a lot um, of that drug and took it deliberately, but in some days or weeks beforehand. So by the time the urine test is conducted, there isn't very much left in their system. Or it may be that they've ingested a very small amount, and that's why there's only a small amount in the sample. So sometimes just the process itself doesn't tell us all the information we need to know to make a judgment on the case in hand. Now, there's been certainly examples where a drug that's 
allowable out of competition has still been in an athlete system in the in-competition period. So stimulants, for example, mainly are allowed out of competition, but they might stay in the body for one or two days and the athlete's not used it in the in-competition period, but it's still in their system. Uh, for quite a long time, the threshold has now been changed, but the threshold on marijuana was so sensitive that in 2013 it was admitted by WADA that you could passively smoke marijuana almost two or three weeks before you were tested and there would still be some element in your sample. So all of those kind of scientific issues, the, the huge scandal two or three years ago was meldonium, where the, the scientific information required to make judgments on excretion rates was not actually sound enough. So although Maria Sharapova famously admitted it and had to take a hit of a sanction, those athletes that basically claimed to have stopped using it on the 31st of December, the day before it was banned, would made their case that it was still in their system some months later and nobody could prove otherwise. So the science sometimes doesn't actually keep up with all the different variety of contexts in which athletes can find themselves um, with, a, with a positive test. This is an issue I run into pretty consistently, which is when asked, uh, how about this? The issue I run into is that there is a perception among the public that what's really happening is that the science might be emerging in some capacity, but that there is this general body of knowledge that is pretty reliable, either about excretion windows or the performance enhancement effect or potential physical harms from drugs, and that there's a certain surety with it. And that when an athlete gets some of this in their system and ultimately they avoid, let's say, either sanction or at least the worst sanction imaginable in that particular scenario, that it's what it really is is a function of wealth. And it's a function of, um, you know, O.J. Uh, Simpson's famous lawyer, Johnny Cochran, sort of manipulating different elements of the legal system uh, to essentially get a guilty client off. That's That's the way in which it's interpreted. So I guess my question for you would be, to what extent is there surety of the science? I gather that this is not 1968, where we had a pretty finite amount of you know, amphetamines and there was not this um, steroidal arms race, but perhaps we live in a different world. If I had to ask you, how certain are we about the things we're trying to ban, what, what could you tell me? Okay, so I, I guess there's two things in there. So one is the first question is about legal expertise and legal assistance and how good lawyers are at finding loopholes and potential reasons. And every case has the opportunity to go to tribunal and then arbitration. And the best lawyers have a huge amount of experience and what they can do sometimes in going and say, well, you know, there's ways to reduce the ban. And that they're all actually embedded in the world anti-doping code. So you can get a reduced ban, for example, an early admission of guilt you could get a reduced ban if you give substantial assistance, so information on other people using it. You could also, if there's no fault or intention, um, then you can get a reduced ban. So I think sometimes what appears in the public domain might be a situation where an athlete, with the normal circumstances, get a four-year ban, but they've managed to appeal their case, get good lawyers, people who really understand the code, take it to arbitration, potentially in Switzerland, and they come away with maybe a one-year ban. 
but it may be because of all of those things put together. And my major concern in that particular circumstance is those athletes who can't afford the good lawyers and who don't have the time and the energy to go to arbitration because it can be very costly financially and emotionally, psychologically, and for career reputation. Oftentimes, we also see people have to admit things which they don't want to admit. So people have had to admit, for example, the use of um, you know, enhancement substances for their private life, shall we say, in public so that they have to, um, in order to get their sanction, or they've had to admit you know, using cocaine or whatever. So the whole legal process, I think, is you know, exposes the athlete to information about their private life, their medical circumstances, and so on and so forth. The second part you're asking is the surety of science. And I think if we sort of take that in the abstract to start with, there's almost an, an inevitable um, lag behind of the anti-doping science to the actual doping entrepreneurs. So in most instances, we don't know a drug is being used until it's being used. And so if you have real innovators who know the science and who can produce you know, their own drugs in such a way that they keep it under the radar, then you could have products which are used and there just isn't a scientific test for them. You know, some prime examples would be going back 15 years to the Balco case. G designer steroid, nobody knew about it until it was... Um, a, a syringe full of it was sent to USADA uh, by one of the coaches who was disgruntled at, um, at the organisation. We also have things like coming on the market, second, third, fourth generation EPO products, especially in cycling and endurance running, where basically some clever people have managed to manipulate the molecular structure so it's not detectable until it's been used and then there's evidence of usage. So the surety of science, and there's quite a few other things in here, of course. One is the window between the usage and the test, as I've already mentioned. Another one might actually be which laboratory is it sent to. So some of the, the best laboratories can detect the lowest amount. So, for example, the Spanish cyclist Alberto Contador had his sample sent to Cologne, and they had a different machine for detection of clenbuterol than other labs. Um, one of the famous instances from a Scottish perspective was Alan Baxter, the skier in 2000 Salt Lake City Winter Games. So he tested positive for Lev methamphetamine. If his race was on the final day and the, the um, laboratory in Salt Lake City had been packed up, so his sample was sent to the UCLA lab. Now, if it had been processed on site, they would not have detected it, but because it was sent to the lab, um, in California, it was detected. So there's, even within the laboratory process, there's variations and divergences, which are quite hard to explain in a public domain. And so I guess the public impression is that there, you know, people ought to be on top of this and know what they're doing and what's detected is correct. But there's definitely been, I mean, certainly I know of five or six cases where athletes have a very, very strong case against laboratories having mishandled their sample, you know, left out and it degraded or perhaps some misinterpretation of the readings in the lab. 
there's ongoing cases in athletics uh, in which this has happened with EPO. There was a study done in 2008 by a Danish scientist who sent um, EPO samples to different laboratories and they came back with different results. So there's a kind of history um, which is complex, complicated, difficult to understand and difficult to publicise, which actually highlights to me that the science is not 100%. And I guess my final point on all of that is even a 99.9% certainty of any particular test leaves open the 0.01% chance of a false positive. So if you imagine that there are um, 300,000 tests a year for around about 300 substances, then you're potentially looking at between 50 and 100 false positives every year. Now, obviously, they have the B sample to follow that up, but even with the B sample, there's still a percentage chance that there could be some false positives. You also have, well, sorry, I did say that my final point. <laughs> There's definitely my final point on this. You have the, the possibility of sabotage. People can put things in other people's drinks or bottles or um, food, and we would never know. There's definitely been one or two cases. There was a case in Japan where um, a, a canoeist um, spiked his own teammate's water bottle with a steroid, and the teammate tested positive but they, happily they found out what had happened. But if they hadn't found out what had happened, of course, then it would have been the victim who was punished. And there's been two or three other cases where that seems to have been what happened. So the whole kind of science is, the science looks good from the outside, but I think when you start picking away at some of it, there's definitely some problems. I guess the, the part of that, though, that I'm still a little bit unclear about, and I guess I didn't ask it the right way, which is, why does there appear to be, and maybe I'm wrong about this, so if I am, please correct my impression, but my impression is, in reading the tea leaves, certainly in my sport, but I think this is true generally across sports, is that the public, you know, whether or not they care about anti-doping scandals, I think is a bit of a separate one, but there does appear to be a diminished faith in anti-doping institutions, and I think part of that is, one, are they hampered by the lack of perceived scientific certainty? I think partly they're one that speaks to motivations. Like even in this John Jones case, before we move on from it, you know, Jeff Nowitzki had sort of a a, a, a nearly angelic uh, view when he first waltzed into MMA, at least from the, the really pro-anti-doping crowd. Boy, I got to tell you, Paul, that has been dramatically uh, impacted. Now, whether or not that's deserved, I think, is a bit of a different question. I think, I, I'll be honest, I think some of the anti-doping zealotry in mixed martial arts goes way too far. But nevertheless, it does speak to, I think, a larger sense that, okay, there are legitimate problems in formulating some kind of apparatus to adjudicate these cases and how money can impact that. There is some limits to the science and how this doping entrepreneurship essentially leads the way on top of that though it's 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 less how capable are we in an otherwise good faith effort i think there's also questions of to what extent is there really a good faith effort among larger anti-doping bodies yeah sorry which one of those do you want me to specifically focus on i, I, think, the last, I think the last one is that the okay. it, 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 you know it's it's 
part of it is a good faith effort. I think there's a, also is, is this really a good faith effort? How much of this is simply, you know, accommodating commercial interest as commercialization has affected the Olympics or, or you're talking with professional sports, which essentially are built on this. How much of this is a good faith effort that they're just hampered by? And how much of this is the public really picking up on something that maybe some of this isn't really a good faith effort that the anti-doping institutions and the lack of trust that they have engendered is a function of, well, we're just going to do what's best for business. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, my impression of that question is that, um, yeah, so anti-doping emerged in the Olympics after a series of scandals. And the scandals were seen as potentially undermining the whole Olympic movement. So WADA was created in 1999. So the whole of the 1990s had been um under suspicion, shall we say. Lots of different countries and lots of different events. So it's quite interesting that the person who was put in charge of WADA was a lawyer. This is, I'm talking about Dick Pound, the Canadian, who was the first president of WADA. But before he was a lawyer, he was also in charge of the marketing and media expansion of the IOC. So he had a very commercial eye as well. And this idea that sports should be clean and we should not know about athletes who are doping, is definitely a very commercially focused one. Sponsors and media companies and supporters of particular teams or individuals, they're buying a product. And when they buy the product, they expect to have some faith. They expect that product to be, um, to have value, to have ethics, I suppose, is what we're, what we're driving at. And you can see that in the different trajectories of people's careers. So um, if you take Lance Armstrong, he was definitely a, a highly commercialized individual. He had lots of sponsors. He had his charity. You know, everybody knows that story. And then as soon as the doping claims eventually stuck, then all of that collapsed. And um, if you look at Russia, you know, they're not, you've got to a point where the IOC actually could probably think it's better not to have Russia in the Olympics because it undermines the image of the Games so much. So I think there is an, an element of of that particular ethos. I also find it contradictory, but still the case that anti-doping is hugely underfunded. So the Olympics is a multi-billion dollar industry. And yet the World Anti-Doping Agency has a budget somewhere in the region of about 30 or 40 million dollars for all their staff and, the, you know, the whole year. So then they have to rely upon the individual sports to pay for anti-doping testing. And many of those sports don't have the money to do so. And um, sometimes they don't have the inclination to do so because it would just create scandal. And there's definitely bits of evidence that some sports have tried to actively avoid the scandals. And I think that's it. So those two things kind of sit almost in contradistinction contra to the, the good faith effort because anti-doping pioneers and leaders have always tried to present themselves as being moral leaders. They're, they're almost the purest of the pure. You know, they've not been dragged down to... Um, the lower levels of corruption and cheating and they actually have a mission to, to root that out 
no matter what it takes. And I think underneath that, though, has been almost a lack of, well, first of all, a lack of a sense of reality. As you say, we live in a completely different pharmaceutical world than we did in the 1960s when these ideas were first um, made into a policy. But they also lack any sort of compassion for any individual athletes who might actually be innocent. So athletes who don't know how they tested positive, don't, there's, not, there's never been a structure to allow them to properly make the case. There's always been a presumption of guilt. The strict liability rule is that it's, a, it's in your system, it's your responsibility. And so I think this anti-doping zealotry, as you say, is, is cracking down on substances which are probably not that harmless sometimes. They're probably not going to make a huge difference sometimes to enhancing performance. But the crackdown is so severe that we're almost into that, you know, war on drugs mentality where there's huge unintended consequences and collateral damage of people being punished disproportionately for things which don't have a huge amount of evidence or, or, or meaningful sort of rationale for, for the punishments they receive. So we seem to have gone round in a bit of a circle since WADA was first introduced. So the late 90s was, a, was seen as a time of, of scandal and lack of control and lack of cohesion. WADA tried their best for the first 10 or 15 years to put in strategies to get on top of that. But I think we've almost come back to a point where it needs to be revisited because those strategies have actually they've not solved the problem. People can still get away with doping, but they've actually created this unintended problem of you know, excessive punishments for um, innocuous or even innocent situations. This leads me to, I think, a, a, a similarly situated point. One of the points raised in the book, the, the anti-doping crisis in sport, as I'd like to sort of get into it now, is this idea of part of the motivation behind anti-doping to begin with. One is this sort of moral purity of sport. Um, and it was actually an interesting point that was made in the, in the book is that a lot of times for all of the high-minded ideals, a lot of organizations were pursuing anti-doping to protect the organizations rather than rooting out some perceived problem. But I think we have to sort of talk about this and I would love to get your perspective. The book details essentially this, this, this mission creep of anti-doping to the point now where we'll talk about this, I think, at the end of our conversation, USADA signing up to be in charge, essentially, of rooting out illegal gambling in the United States and illegal sports gambling, which I think is kind of an interesting discussion. But for now, the book raises all these harms. What if someone is falsely accused? If anti-doping gets so powerful, you, it is... Uh, subject to sabotage, as you mentioned with a Japanese canoeist. Um, we've had situations in mixed martial arts where fighters got back from practice and these mats, as you can well imagine, are filthy. If you do not shower in a prompt manner, you can get all kinds of diseases. He had to shower openly in front of another um, testing proctor, and it goes on and on and on. And every time I bring one of these situations up, like these are a series of harms that we, we, do, know, not, we do not necessarily need to, need to tolerate the, the Obvious and consistent response is whatever we need to do to root out cheating in sport, that is critically important for society. Why have we placed this value on sport, perceived recreational games, um, with this kind of truly social cohesion kind of mission? Where, where did this come from and, and 
do you buy into its purpose or its uh, under intellectual underpinnings? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, there's a long history. Uh, we could probably talk about the ancient Greeks if we really wanted to, but I don't really know enough about them uh, to, to, to say too much. Certainly from the mid sort of 19th century onwards, especially in England and then later in France, sport was seen part of it as a civilizing purpose. So civilizing the working classes at home, but also civilizing the populations of lived in countries that that um, were part of our empire. So when you know British colonialists were out in India, they would start a cricket club. They would teach the local people how to play cricket, and embedded in that would be a moral enterprise. It would be part of their. Um, lessons and discipline and self-control and you know time and respect and all those sorts of things and even the wearing of a uniform and the following of rules and respecting the boundaries respecting the judgment of umpires and referees all of that was couched in the element of um, moral codes and basically civilizing mission there's quite a lot of literature on that um, which is quite easy to find so the founder of the Olympic movement, Pierre um, de Coubertin, was a French aristocrat. And obviously France had an empire as well, but de Coubertin was actually inspired by the British, British use of sport. And he was upset that the French had been defeated in a couple of wars and you know, he wanted to improve the moral fibre of the young people and, and also to promote international cooperation and peacefulness. So he saw sport as having a huge potential value. So as time goes on, when the Olympics becomes a little bit more powerful and the leaders try to protect the Olympic movement from professionalism, what they do is they try to inculcate amateur sport with more of this moral code. So the amateur athlete is seen as morally superior and different. And this also strikes uh, a chord with social class. Because it's middle and upper class people who can afford to be amateurs. They have the time, they have the money, it can be a hobby, they don't have to take it seriously. And there's an element by the mid-20th century that taking sport too seriously is a bad thing because sport should be an escape, escapism, it should be different to work. So when professional sport appears increasingly through the 20th century, and this is where we see the, the emergence of stimulant use, Actually, the IOC are using, in my opinion, they were using anti-doping to actually um, have a subtext of anti-professionalism. They don't want professionals to sully the games because they want to keep the games to themselves and they don't want cyclists and marathon runners and football players to be bringing you know, drugs and cheating and corruption and all those sorts of things, which and gambling, I suppose, that are associated with essentially uh, less moral perspectives of the sport. So it's interesting, I was thinking about um, the fact that in the 1960s there was an attempt to ban altitude training ahead of the 1968 games in Mexico because it was discovered that altitude training could give you an advantage. So teams that travel to Mexico um, were not allowed to travel too early in case they got the altitude effect that would improve their performance. And of course, in practical terms, 
that's it's impossible rule. You can't ban people from going to to mountainous areas. It's just impossible. And then, of course, around about the same time, there was sex testing because there was an assumption that um, doping would lead to um, higher levels of testosterone in women. And that should be banned as well, but that's run into problems. So sport retained this element of kind of purity of purpose, I think, around about that time because of the amateurism professional issue. But when the Olympics accepted professionalism in the 1980s, then almost you had to recreate that. Somehow you had to remodel it because the Olympics tried to create this, this impression that they're somehow different, they're somehow loftier. They have greater ideals and visions that hark back to the ancient Greeks, but really, in fact, they hark back to 19th century England. So anti-doping, I think, uh, this is my own personal view on it, that is empowered because what anti-doping does is it tries to retain that legacy of some sort of moral purity. And the moral purity is more sellable as a product and it makes the Olympics look different. It makes it look different to professional team sports that ha- that by that stage are beginning to get more money, more attention um, and higher profile. So soccer, for example, um, by the 1980s, we were, you were into the kind of £1 million transfer fees. You were into the, the World Cup becoming a hugely commercialised enterprise that hadn't really been before. So you're in a much more competitive market for um, the Olympics to try to promote themselves. Now, anti-doping, paradoxically, harks back to you know, a, a, a previous era, to the amateur era. But it's almost been reframed as if you're a good professional, you actually look after your body and you don't abuse it by taking these excessive amounts of these drugs. So cleverly, it's been you know, readjusted to actually make it seem as if it's part of the integrity of professionalism. I, you know, in my perspective, what's been lost in all of that is the idea that professionalisms need, professional athletes need a career. They actually need to be allowed to practice their sport. And if they're not practicing their sport, they're not feeding their family. And again, it's almost an anachronism that the Olympic movement have tried to impose a four-year ban because essentially that just fits with the Olympic cycle. So what they want to say is, if an athlete's caught doping in um, 2013, we don't want them in the 2016 games. In my opinion, that's why it's a four-year ban. It doesn't sit with professional sports. Baseball, as you know, have collectively bargained a much different sanctioning system. Um, the wider rules were imposed upon cycling when the president of the UCI was basically saying, we don't want this, this doesn't fit for us. But he was kind of overruled because the, pub- the bad publicity around cycling meant they had to be seen to be signing up to some form of you know, global code. And then you have other sports where the time period on which an athlete has the chance to become great, to become the best in their sport is so short that a four-year ban probably ruins their career. So I always think of swimmers. You know, if you're not a great swimmer by the time you're, what, 20, 21 years old, something like that, then you're not going to be a great swimmer. So these sports with a very shortened window of opportunity are badly affected by the four-year uh, ban. So 
I suppose to answer your question, this mission creep of anti-doping has ebbed and flowed over the years. Uh, it's been driven by scandals and by innovations within the supply side of anti-doping. It's tried to hold on to um, a policy ambition of clean sport. And does that mean drug-free sport? I think in theory it's supposed to mean drug-free sport. But of course, some drugs are okay. So um, even a powerful drug like tramadol um, has only just been banned. So why why are you allowed to take tramadol when it's basically an opioid? But some other drugs which are banned are probably not that problematic, especially diuretics. They're banned because they're seen as masking agencies, masking agents, so they can cover up the use of steroids. So it's ebbed and flowed over the years, and I think nobody's really been allowed, because WADA was given all that power in 1999 and we were given the ambition of clean sport, there's never been an alternative voice. There's never been another organization that said, well, you know, let's do something different. The only different models are in professional team sports in America, where they're collectively bargained. And they have different policies on recreational drug use and medicinal drug use and therapeutic use exemptions and privacy and the whole thing. I guess the other thing you touched upon, which I'll just say a few words on, um, is the whole thing about surveillance. So what we've allowed to happen, because WADA have been given the authority, is that all athletes in all sports, when they reach a certain level, have sometimes unknowingly signed up to a policy which allows people to basically invade their privacy. So however you want to discuss it, you know, whether it's necessary for clean sport or not, there is unquestionably a huge invasion of personal space and personal privacy. So athletes can be tested 365 days a year. They can be tested, I believe it's from 6 in the morning till 11 at night. They can be tested in their home. They can be tested in their workplace. Um, they can be tested on holiday. The athletes on the whereabouts system have to give one hour a day where they're going to be, like a form of house arrest. And I've heard lots and lots of stories of people who just feel as if they've been abused by that system. They have to be chaperoned. And all the time it takes to deliver the urine sample, they have to have someone with them, no matter what they're doing. As you say, even if they're going to shower or going to do something else, it should be private. At the point of delivering the sample, there are no rules. So the, the anti-doping, uh, the doping control officer uh, can be as close to the, their genitalia as they seem, seem to be necessary. And if it's a young athlete, they can have a chaperone, another chaperone, somebody that they know. But again, in this world of what we learn about sexual abuse and so on and so forth, having two people follow them to the bathroom doesn't actually sound to me like a good solution. So this mission creep has actually had a huge, huge impact upon athletes' um, privacy, their health and well-being, their levels of anxiety and stress when it comes to giving samples, as well as all those issues about um, false positives and problems in the lab and the legal process and so on and so forth. And personally, I think there had just hasn't been enough um, critical debate on all of these issues. 
very quickly, because I want to make sure we get to the relevant issues laid out in the book about ways in which to frame a new anti-doping policy. Uh, but you mentioned the ones about American sports. This is a really fascinating topic to me that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Now, the sport that I cover has adopted Olympic posturing yeah. despite literally what is good for business uh, or even its athletes. And remember, the athletes had no say in it. There is no um, fighters union. So that's very different than the NFL, which has the players union. But you know what really stands out to me is, and the question would be, would be um, very quickly if we can, it, what would you say is the impact on anti-doping scandal on the public, and I want to ask you sort of from two different vantage points, namely, once a scandal gets out, how much evidence is there that they really care? Um, candidly, I'll tell you, my favorite soccer team is Real Madrid. Sergio Ramos just got implicated, and it felt like that came and went, even in a season where they're not even doing very well. It wasn't like victories at the Bernabeu were somehow tamping down what would otherwise be um, big news. It, it just came and left uh, with, with public denial. On the other hand, I hear this all the time in America, which is, wow, the NBA never really has a doping scandal. Uh, the NHL never really has a doping scandal. And then you look at how powerful the NBA Players Union is and the NHL Players Union. And certainly in the NFL, they have a bit more of an advanced anti-doping policy than the one the NBA has. But you can use once or twice before the public even knows about it. It's a four-game suspension on often. It's not really that big a deal. And what that you come to find out is that the public then begins to believe maybe these guys aren't even using, despite all the evidence that we know, they're almost certainly these enormous athletes colliding with each other and then on the floor all the time. It, it, it would be uh, irrational to assume that they wouldn't be. And yet it has massively shaped public perception. Do you like the American system of, of how professional sports have done this, where anti-doping works in concert with the players union to form a policy because the players seem to like it. The public seems to like it. It seems to be good for business. I, I'm not entirely sure I understand what the problem is. Well, um, I think I do like the system. I think athletes should have a voice of some sort. I think the anti-doping system should only be put in place where the, the organizations involved have the capacity to deliver it. I've heard a few stories recently from American um, motocross where you know athletes have not even had a chance to go to tribunal because there isn't the organizational capacity to do that. So I think, it, yes, um, there's been a campaign amongst some British athletes to try to have more, more of a voice in WADA. However, I suppose there's two, there's two sides to that because most athletes at the moment are jumping up and down about Russia and how Russia are being allowed to get off with it, perceived to get off with it. And I think the Russia scandal is one that the public remember and they want to remember. Um, and actually, historically, I think a lot of anti-doping has been motivated by suspicions of East Europeans and communist countries back in the, the Cold War era. But I also think there's a lot of forgiveness or at least forgetfulness. And you're absolutely right when somebody, when an athlete is a great hero that we don't want to think badly of, then it, it does come and go. And there's cyclists that have come back into the sport um, after doping. There's football players that have come back. Uh, Sami Nasri, the former Manchester City player, he's just come back. And nobody's mentioned his, the doping violation. Um but of course, there's still the occasional kind of uh, folk devil, you know, the witch hunt. So I, I think people like Ben Johnson and Lance Armstrong, you know, they're really going to struggle to have any form of 
public life. So I, I, I don't really know. There's not a, the evidence. There's not a lot of evidence, I would say. But what I would probably say is, there's it slightly depends on the context, and you know, team sports athletes seem to probably get away with it a bit more than individuals. Um, some countries are treated with a huge amount of suspicion and distrust because we, you know, the general sort of corrupt perception of corruption in certain countries. And a lot, I think a lot actually depends on the public image management of the athlete. So uh, the Scottish cyclist David Miller was banned for two years in 2004, but he was allowed to come back. He was the captain of the Scotland team in the Commonwealth Games because he himself went on a, almost a personal crusade of sort of confession and then support for anti-doping uh, in order to sort of reintegrate himself. So I don't think it's as simple as saying the public care or don't care. I think it a little bit depends on the individuals involved in the, the context. But you're absolutely right about football. I'm, uh, you know, I'm fairly sure that football is one of those sports where most fans just want the performance. They don't really care what goes into the performance. They don't. They're not really interested in what happens on the training ground. You know, they're quite interested in stories about you know, personal rivalries or how managers deal with certain players. But the whole of that is, you might remember from my book, that that period of time when Spain and the Spanish teams were winning everything, there was har- hardly any drug testing. You know, did anybody care? No. No. Um, so there's certain sports, athletics, cycling, and a few others where people do care about the amount of testing and what goes on. But I think football and rugby and perhaps even the American team sports you mentioned, you know, they're consumer products. You know, they want, people want to be entertained. They want the event, the atmosphere, the great players, you know, the great shots and the great goals. I'm not convinced that they're really interested in the, the moral purity of that. One last question before we talk about the uh, issues framed in the book in terms of how to fix anti-doping. Uh, there's been a recent reframing that some anti-doping authorities have done. Uh, it is alluded to somewhat in the book, but namely it's that uh, it's two things. One, uh, we need to stamp out doping because it violates the rights of clean athletes. And that that works in tandem with this idea that doping is fraud, right? So you'll recall Lance Armstrong was uh, pursued by anti-doping authorities, and he had to have all his money, uh, he had to give back money and his medals because he had defrauded uh, the U.S. Postal Service because they had, um, you know, sponsored him and, and whatnot. One, I have a couple questions, or I have two, have two issues about this. One, it's like, uh, it feels like a very interesting way to frame it, but I'm not sure that I buy it intellectually, in part because it runs headlong to the idea that, well, how can there be rights of clean athletes if they run headlong into the rights of privacy of all athletes? Rights shouldn't be uh, bumping into one another. They should work in concert. And I think, too, but the fraud issue, that just seems like a way to introduce criminalization more than it's an accurate re- reflection of what's happening. How do you feel about this defrauding issue? Okay, so, the, yeah, the fraud's interesting because um, I always think of the Ben Johnson photograph you know, the one that you might have caught <laughs> when he's raising his hand just before he crosses the line and Carl Lewis is looking around, looking hugely disappointed. And I always think that that's almost like a poster image for anti-doping. Um, 
And because underlying that is the assumption that Ben Johnson took something, he took something that other athletes hadn't taken, and it was because of that one thing that she took that he gained those extra, you know, metre or, or two metres. And that's why he won the race. And I think all of those things can be questioned, all of them. So he had the same amount of testing system and access to drugs and so on and so forth as all those athletes. So if they had decided not to do those things, then, you know, it's kind of their choice. But there's no absolute guarantee that any of the drugs that he took were the reason that he gained that extra meter over his rivals. And when you start to unpick that a bit more, some of the drugs which are banned are not performance enhancing, um, especially some in skill-based sports or team sports. They rely on so many different factors that the, the drug in question might not have made any difference. So this idea of fraud uh, just relies upon a very one-dimensional simplistic view that the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal might be because of one particular substance which an athlete took. But it also relies upon the idea that athletes are all kind of equal. They all have equal opportunities before they get to the podium, before they get to the race. And actually, the, an athlete's chances of success are determined by their genetics, of course, but they're determined by their family environment, the coaches they had when they were young, the equipment that they've had access to, the international, national and international competitions they were exposed to. You know, there's so many different factors that make a great athlete that I just struggle to believe that one single drug at any one moment actually is the difference between winning and losing. So, and then that raises the interesting question about retesting samples, because if basically if we hang on to that idea of fraud, if an athlete who won a silver medal in London 2012 Olympics is now given a gold medal, then they could quite rightly say, actually, if I'd won gold, I would have got more funding more sponsorship, more media coverage. I would have been on, you know, television. I would have been, you know, advertise, helping to advertise banks or shoes or clothes. Or I would have had much more economic uh, gain from this if I'd won a gold medal. So uh, to me, that opens up the opportunity for an athlete to actually then sue or take some sort of compensation case against the authorities because they didn't have the anti-doping system in place to ensure that they won the gold medal that they should have won because it's now been proved that they should have won it. And so the whole retesting thing, if it relies on the concept of fraud, it's actually opening up the door, I think, to compensation. But nobody's done that so far, but it could well happen. So you're totally right when you talk about the rights, the concept of rights, whether it's civil rights or human rights, is really, really interesting. Um, the World Players Association is kind of campaigning for athletes' rights to privacy, to education, to you know having all the information and support that they need. Now, so far, World Dance Open Agency hasn't listened to them a lot because they probably perceive exactly what you're saying. That's a conflict against the rights of clean athletes. They're constantly focusing on the rights of clean athletes to participate in drug-free races or events. So that, to me, strikes the dilemma of anti-doping and the development of any new solutions because if you find a solution which supports the rights of clean athletes, then you're down the line of more surveillance, more monitoring, more testing, 
and more unintended consequences and more invasions of privacy. If you take a solution which attempts to address the issue of privacy, then people will say, oh, you're opening the door to doping. If you allow athletes a two-week holiday in the, in the off-season, they'll just use that to dope. Or if somebody doesn't follow them to the bathroom, they'll just find a way to swap samples. So actually, the, the paradox of anti-doping is you're trying to protect the image of sport, but you don't want too much scandal. You're trying to protect the rights of clean athletes, but you can't have too much invasion of, invasion of privacy. You're trying to protect athletes' health and well-being, but you insist on invasion, invasion of their privacy. You're asking them to trust in a system which isn't always trustworthy because it's not 100% foolproof. And, it's un, and the, kind of, the biggest issue we've not touched on yet already is that what happens in one country is not the same as what happens in another country. So an athlete could go to an event, they could line up against athletes from wherever else, and they can look down the line and think, I don't know for sure that those people have been tested as much as I have, so therefore I can't trust that they've not been doping. If they've not been tested for the last six months, they could have been doing anything. And that, I think, is a huge issue as well. It comes under the concept of harmonisation. If you have a standardised universal policy that you insist on applying to everyone, you have to absolutely find ways to make sure it's applied the same in all countries and all in all sports. Otherwise, you're just creating an unlevel playing field, which is the exact opposite of what they were trying to achieve. Let's talk about some of those new ways forward. I could. There's a whole. To, to be clear yeah. for the audience, there's an entire. Uh, amount of um, ink spilled on how much anti-doping is really a function of first world concerns. And again, the the book, The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, deals with this and so much more. We don't barely have a scratch the surface. But one of the key features of the book is that you and your co-author, pronounce his last name for me, please. I, I, I It's one of the, it's, it's a lettering from a language that I know nothing about. How do you pronounce it? Well, it's Mueller. Mueller. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead. Well, the, the, no, as if it was M-E-U-L-L-O-R. Ah, uh, Mueller. Yeah. Got it. Okay. In any event, you guys worked in, in concert to propose a set of ways in moving forward. One of them, if I may push back a little bit, is on education, both early and often is the way I would describe it, in getting ahead of athletes as they develop to talk about the risks of use and the potential physical harms maybe potential career consequences as a way of dissuading intellectually, almost as if um, sort of a, a part of what America did to root out smoking uh, yeah. was pass a lot of laws, but there has been a pretty steady campaign in convincing people not to do it. And I think there were probably some literature to that effect. On the other hand, I still think if the incentives are in place, that's going to be difficult. Education is going to be difficult to counteract real-world incentives. People simply respond to what actually exists. However, there was an idea you proposed that I found kind of interesting that I would really like to d drill down on, which was the chaperone. Yeah. This idea that you know, rather than these guys showing up and after a practice we have to shower in front of them or they watch you use the bathroom, you essentially have this I don't know, what do you want to call it, a live-in guest for, for a lack of a better description? Please articulate this idea of the chaperone and why you believe that actually would be sort of paradoxically not even as much of an invasion of privacy as what we already have. 
Yeah, so uh, it's interesting you should touch upon that one. Um, myself and Bernard thought long and hard about including that one <laughs> because we knew it would. Um, touch I don't. I don't want to present it as like that's the <laughs> most important thing that you had put forward, but it is eye-catching for its. It's a bold idea, and so I think it merits further conversation. Yeah. So that's what, in essence, we were saying that if you really want to ensure an athlete's clean, if that's what you, if that's what we want to do, then why not? assign them a minder of some sort that basically watches them, watches what they do. Now, in a kind of easy, a kind of simple way of, of giving a, a rationale for that would be that most athletes who deliberately dope in an organized, systematic way need to find a doping doctor. So you, this chaperone or minder would be ensuring that they're not visiting a doctor who is kind of off the books, as it were. They're not going back to their house with blood bags and, you know, setting them up overnight and all those sorts of things which athletes were doing. But it also might actually prevent the need for a testing system, which is ad hoc. So at the moment, a testing system is just a snapshot. So most athletes would only be tested maybe two or three times out of competition per year at the most. So that to me is not, it's not enough. If you really want to ensure they're clean, then you would really have to be testing them once every two or three weeks. So that's clearly not going to happen. The other thing, as you say, is you wouldn't need to have a drug control officer which then follows the person around and follows them into the bathroom and so on and so forth. And you wouldn't have the issues of the sample collection and delivery and all the potential risks around that. You wouldn't have inadvertent positives because we would know what the athletes were taking um, so if an athlete claims, for example, they inadvertently um, had cocaine in their system because they, they kissed someone that had used cocaine, which has come up a few times, well, the, the minder would actually be able to say, yeah, no, that, that never happened because the, we know what the athlete had been doing over the last two or three days, and they were never in a circumstance where that would have happened. So, but the minder might also advise them on not taking recreational drugs, so if they're out a weekend and somebody offers them something or going to their own doctor and the doc. So if you go to your own normal doctor, what we would call a general practitioner, they might not be completely up to speed with the world anti-doping code. So the chaperone might say, well, actually, if the doctor's prescribed something, let's sit down together and make sure it's not uh, on the list of banned substances. So there's quite a lot of ways in which actually it might be an improvement on the system. Now, people, one of the responses we were expecting would, would, would be an angry response where people might say, well, isn't that an invasion of someone's privacy? To which, of course, our response is, well, the current system is an invasion of privacy. How much more is this? In some ways, it's less of an invasion of privacy because they don't need the whereabouts information. They don't need to give whereabouts information to other people. They don't need to give their medical history to other people. They don't have to admit to taking, you know, actually legitimate drugs. Um, you would avoid the case that we had with the fancy bears and the hackers uh, and people's medical files became public knowledge. You know, all of that could be avoided. So, uh, interestingly enough, I've had this quite a few discussions with people and then the next question is, oh, but wouldn't it be too expensive? And, of course, the response is, well, you know, there's enough money in professional sports and there's enough money in the Olympic movement to make this work. Maybe not for all athletes, but maybe the athletes that you want to focus on. 
So let's take an example. So currently, WADA are trying to ensure that the Russians are clean. So in actual fact, what you could do is you could say, well, when's the next event that the Russians want to be in? So let's say it's the Winter Olympics. Sorry, what would it be? Where are we, 2019? No, it's probably the, the summer. Let's say it's the Summer Olympics of 2020. So you could have a situation where the Russians say, well, here's the 200 athletes that we expect to be in the Olympics. We're going to assign each one of them a chaperone for six months before the event. Those chaperones could be selected by a country outside of Russia. So we could be sending British people or Americans or whoever, Europeans, to actually be external observers. So they follow these 200 athletes around. They make sure there's no doping doctors, there's no corruption of laboratories, and there's no violations uh, accidentally. There's no drugs being given by you know, their general practitioner, doctors, and so on and so forth. And therefore, those 200 athletes could appear at the Tokyo Games and say, well, actually, we've, for six months, we've had the minder system, the chaperones followed us around, here we are, we're clean. So the question, I suppose, which is a sort of hypothetical one in between the lines is, how seriously does sport really want to ensure athletes are clean? And what we're basically arguing is this ad hoc, once every few months testing system doesn't actually remotely get us towards clean sport, not even remotely, because we simply don't know what athletes are doing in between the times of those tests. So um, just coming back to your point about education as well, I mean, our earlier ideas were to try to reduce the, the, the reasons for doping by reducing the economic incentives. So we could return to a period of amateurism where People can no longer earn money from sport. Right. Or we could introduce salary caps where you can only earn a certain amount. Or you could say, well, actually, if you take cycling as an example, the person that wins the Tour de France earns the same amount of money as the person who comes 20th. It's an equal distribution of the, of, the, um, of, of the prize money. And it's interesting because that's also created the backlash. People have said, oh, there's no way that would, you know, you're know, completely unrealistic. That would never happen. So all of these things to me are just strike at the contradictions of what, what you said earlier, which was really valuable, which was we try to imagine the sport as somehow unique in society, that it holds a special place. We put it on a pedestal. We try to create athletes as sort of superhuman beings that are faultless and perfect. And we create a set of rules that's really, really hard to follow. We don't give them the education and the support sometimes to follow them, but we still expect them to do it. And if they don't follow those rules, they, they can even be charged with negligence, even if they've not done anything on purpose. So we've set a much higher bar, if you like, of standards of morality and of practice and day-to-day -day life they have to monitor almost everything that goes into their body. So they're a unique population. But at the same time, we incentivize them to dope because you can make more money if you can enhance your performance. And we have a system which is so incomplete and so inefficient that nobody can trust whether it actually works properly. So all of those underlying principles, if you like, are what led us to lay out I think seven or eight different types of conclusions. 
Uh, I'm not convinced any of our conclusions are the answer. <laughs> because of all these paradoxes and different pools and different directions. But a natural fact, as I say, the one that we were almost most reluctant to put in, the chaperone idea, is probably one of the most realistic ones, because in actual fact, that would hit the outcome of clean sport, it would hit the outcome of um, athlete welfare and privacy, um, and although it would be expensive, it's, you know, it's up to the athletes and the and the, the organisations involved to find the money to if they really want sport to be clean, then they should find the money to do it. The, just to, to backtrack, not to backtrack, but to circle back rather to the point about uh, education. I certainly take your point that the way it's presented in the book is a much more coherent one, where you set up incentives uh, in place in the theorization of a solution that make that a little bit more possible. But for me. You know, certainly coming from America, where the professionalization of sports is only growing from uh, the, how many sports we have in America as professionals, right? So we have huge league of American football, a huge league. Soccer is growing here. Uh, the best NBA, the best basketball players here, the best co- hockey players are here. College sports is this huge issue about how much do they get paid? Are they student athletes? And it's another can of worms. Even now at the high school level, it is growing with traveling um youth soccer teams or youth football teams or whatever. To me, the toothpaste is kind of out of the tube on that one. But I take your point that it is developed in a, in a much more uh, – I didn't give it enough credit in the way in which I pushed back on it. I, I should have introduced that in the way that I meant it. But let's end on this, I suppose. And it circles back to not only solutions that you guys introduced in the book, but about broader problems that we face in anti-doping generally, which is this growing sense of the need for penalization. Really what the problem is, that some would suggest, is – um, we don't have a big enough hammer to hammer the problem out. You introduced in the book a sort of a points-based system by which there could be some penalization. You don't suggest that there should be no penalization, but that a degree of humanity should be introduced, partly for the careers and the short window in which these athletes have an opportunity to make a mark, um, but also that really does this work. I wonder if you could speak to why there is this growing need for you're seeing it in the United States, legislation introduced to criminalize uh, doping, not in the professional ranks, most notably, but certainly mm-hmm. outside of that in Olympic sports for sure. Is it merely because there are these perceived failures that Russia got away with this? There was the Icarus documentary. And so we really have to do something, even if it feels like a very 1980s drug war on drugs kind of scenario. And if you could speak more about why you believe that points-based system and some of your other solutions in the book are a better remedy for the perceived problems. Yeah, so I th- uh, you're absolutely right that in the absence of any other solution at the moment, it does appear that you know deterrence is linked <laughs> to, to, to punishment. Um, but criminal, all, every criminalized, criminology academic I've spoken to says that that's actually not the case. In, in most other fields of criminal behaviour, people are not deterred by the fact that they might get a huge punishment later because they're so kind of, I don't know, motivated to do what it is they want to do. And people would only be deterred if they thought they were going to be caught. So if you imagine back to the, you know, the cycling period of the 1990s and 2000s, nobody thought they'd ever be caught for any of the things they were doing. So it just seems like a simple solution from the outside. 
And it seems like if you can, as you say, hit people harder, you know, a, a, a huge hammer to the system. Um, there was huge sort of groundswell of opinion that Russia should be completely banned from the Olympics for all the things they did. But just because that would fit that particular instance doesn't mean that it would be easily applicable to other contexts. So the proposal that we had, I think it also speaks to the fact that many athletes find themselves in a situation of being tested before they have any education. And so if we drew a parallel example of um, of our students here at university, so you've heard of plagiarism, which we now call academic misconduct. So we have a system which detects that. But what we do with the students when they first arrive is they show them what the system is, they show them how it works, they get them to test the system, they upload documents, they see what it looks like, you can see the areas highlighted in red where they've transferred words from other places. And so they actually know how the testing system works before they're actually in a point where they might be um, punished for plagiarism. So what I think is happening in anti-doping is um, athletes are signed up to the World Anti-Doping Code, sometimes without their consent. It's basically certainly involuntary, whether they're told or not told, they have to do it. But there's no compulsion on any organisation to make sure the athlete has enough education to avoid a test. So the education is about, as you say, performance-enhancing drugs and the risks and so on and so forth. But it's also about the types of drugs which are on the list for which they might test positive. And I guess our idea was we could almost create levels of types of athlete according to their age, the type of sport, um, and the level of education they had and the type of drug they took that would lend, then lend itself to structuring specific types of sanctions. So if you take a case of um, there was a 12-year-old from Poland who was in go-karting who used an energy bar it had a banned substance in it. He went, he was given a two-year ban. It was reduced to, I think, to 18 months. But when he took his case to arbitration, the arbitrator said, age is not relevant. He's 12 years old. And under what other context would a 12-year-old be responsible for themselves and all their lifestyle and all their behaviours? Mm. So I think age is relevant. I think the stage in their career is relevant as well. So if you want a system which is uh, designed for amateurs or non-elites, it should look differently. You know, the people who are tested in a you know, weekend state-level competition should not be under the same conditions as high-level professional or Olympic athletes. There should be something different there. And I think it's the context and the amount of education and the amount of medical support staff they have around them should be taken into account. So if an athlete tests positive for a certain drug and they're sort of in this ranking order according to age and the level of development and the type of sport that they're in and so on and so forth, if they're in a cognitive-based sport, they probably shouldn't be punished for using steroids. It doesn't really matter. If they're in a strength-based sport, you know, it doesn't matter if they've used a, a weight loss drug or something like that. You know, there should be an, 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 an element of relevance. And then once we have that structure, it may be quite complicated, but, you know, it probably wouldn't take, it's not rocket science. 
once, once we have that structure in place, it could then be transferable to different situations without then having the athlete. At the moment, the athlete gets given either a two-year ban or a four-year ban, and then they have to appeal. Whereas why not have the system in place where you know the type of bans that you want, and then the athlete can say, okay, I've tested positive for cannabis. You know, I'm 17 years old. I've never had any education. It was a trace amount. It wasn't related to any competition. You know, according to this structural system that we have in place, you know, I would say that's a three-month ban. So it's almost up to the athlete to say, I think I'm in the three-month ban category here. And then the National Anti-Doping Agency can say, well, yes, you're right, it's three months. Mm. If there's a disagreement, then it goes to, you know, some sort of arbitration process. But I, I don't see how that's very difficult to have sort of graded, nuanced sanctions. Um, we got our inspiration from the England and Wales criminal justice system, where they actually have different sanctions for different types of um, criminal drug use. So if I was caught with 5K of cocaine that I was going to use uh, to deal with and you know make money from, I would get a higher, um, a longer penal sentence than someone who was caught with 10 tabs of ecstasy that you know they were taken to a party for them and their and their friends. You know, there's different levels of drug use and. That's what concerns me the most, that all doping is seen as the Ben Johnson or the Lance Armstrong situations, but all doping is not like that. In fact, most doping is innocuous, it's inadvertent, it's low level, you know, there's no clear link to, to winning a medal or so on and so forth. Um, obviously, we published the book in 2018, we were writing it through the course of 2016 and 2017, so all the stuff about Russia has slightly sort of it's shifted the, the discourse because it's basically brought into the domain a very highly organised systematic form of cheating. But again, I don't see any reason why that can't be accommodated. You should be able to say in, your, in, your, in this system we are proposing that if an athlete belongs to an environment like that, and they've been pressurised to dope, and they've done this, and they've done that, and they've won medals, then there should be a particular type of sanction. And I suppose my final point on that is, if athletes have actually been compelled to dope, rather than made as, as their own voluntary choice, that also should be taken into account, because we're punishing someone who had no choice. To me, is not, you know, that's not morally correct either. Before we go, very quickly, what's one, besides the book, The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, besides that, what's one book on this issue that has really influenced you that others should pick up? Is there some other piece of seminal text that's really important in this field? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that's, I wish you'd asked me that earlier. I would have had a chance to <laughs> Sorry, I've sprung that one on you. So there's a book by the American professor, John Hoberman. Uh, it's probably about 10 years old, maybe 12 years old now, and it's called Testosterone Dreams. And it basically um, outlines in absolutely fabulous detail all the ambiguities, the contradictions, 
and the dilemmas, some of which actually reflect our conversation today. Why was testosterone initially seen as a wonder drug that could help us to lead better, longer, happier lives? And then for certain populations, including in sport particularly, it increasingly becomes seen as a problem. You know, it's not a good thing. It's certainly not good for women. It's certainly not good in these situations. And so if I was to suggest anything, it would probably be, uh, it's quite a lengthy book. You probably need to take your time and read it. Um, But it's an example of wonderful scholarship, wonderful writing. Um, So that's called Testosterone Dreams. If you want a great history of doping and anti-doping in the Olympics, the book by Thomas Hunt called Drug Wars, not Drug Wars, Drug Games, Drug Games. Um, That's a wonderful one. Um, And I guess another book which influenced me was Tyler Hamilton, The Cyclist, The American Cyclist. Yeah. And that was a great book. And that was a real expose um, at a time when people were dancing around the issue. You know, there hadn't really been anything like that book at that time. And that probably changed everything in terms of the public perception of cycling. So that would be my three suggestions. The book is The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport, Causes, Consequences, and Solutions. Uh, Werner Mueller and, of course, Paul DeMio. Dr. Paul DeMio, thank you for your time. Great work. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Thanks. Thanks again to Dr. Paul DeMio for his time. I'll take some of this stuff and I'll put it on my SiriusXM show, The Luke Thomas Show. If you're looking for more information about that, it's in the comment section below. Um, let's see what else if you're watching this video please like it and subscribe to the channel share this around let folks know there there are ways to do this differently in anti-doping and I believe that Dr. Paul DeMio has begun this conversation and advanced it in meaningfully uh, and in very important ways Uh, I'll do this again soon I'm not sure with who and I'm not sure when but more is coming your way if you liked it let me know shoot me an email LukeThomasNews if you didn't you can do the same thing until next time